0: Welcome to the Ditch Ethics Podcast. My name is Seth Viegas. I'm a PhD candidate at Boston University working on the philosophical ethics of emerging and experimental technologies. Here on the podcast, we break down issues of ethics and technology from both a technical and socio-political perspective. Our goal is to help the next generation of technologists to build better systems and to avoid potential ethical pitfalls. On today's episode, I will be reviewing the Pegasus NSO spyware scandal with my collaborator Bernd Derwachter. Burnt is principal at AnalyticDimensions.com, a consultancy for big data analytics and data science projects. Burnt has been advising the podcast from its inception, using insights from his decades of industry experience. We have compiled lists of articles and other resources that we reference in this conversation. Please look them over and do your own research. A big thank you to Mitchell Clark and to Mitchell's reporting at The Verge. The first half of our conversation will talk specifically about the Pegasus NSO spyware scandal about how it works and what other incidents have happened in the past. The second half of our conversation will turn towards broader issues of cybersecurity in general and towards the problem of consent. The key questions for this episode are, if someone gets access to our phone or laptop, just how much reach does that person have into our life? What kinds of surveillance have been enabled by our technologies? What and how can we deal with these things? Before we get started, I want to give a big thank you to Nicole Smith, who designed the logo art for this episode, and to Louis Salinas, who helps to coordinate DigEthics. The intro and outro track, Dreams, was composed by Benjamin Tissett through bensound.com. If you like this episode and would like us to continue to do episodes like this one, please consider leaving a review or giving us feedback directly. You can always email us, digethics at mindandculture.org. You can also reach us on Facebook and Twitter at DigEthics and on Instagram at DigEthicsFuture. Now for a conversation on Pegasus NSO spyware and the business of surveillance. So today we're going to be talking about Pegasus, particularly about this last scandal that came out. A, a journalist was able to uncover about 50,000 phone numbers, which, well, I think it still needs to be verified how many of them were actually compromised phones. But a Israeli organization called NSO was supplying spyware to governments, or at least that's what they say, and they're able to use this really powerful skyware to make what's called a zero attacks. And basically, these are this means that the spyware is able to go active without a- anyone actually clicking a link. All they have to do is receive a message, which, if you think about it, is a really sophisticated early sophisticated kind of attack. And as I've been looking through articles, the Israeli government actually considers this type of spyware to be a weapon, meaning this is like military grade spyware that's being deployed mainly against journalists, activists, and other kind of political high, you know, kind of high interest people. So for instance, the um, in France, Macron was one of the people who who's – had a compromised phone. And in fact, most of the attacks that I was able to see were focused mainly on people in Europe, at least from this latest string of events. However, it's really important to note that NSO actually has a long history of these kinds of events and of exploiting vulnerabilities within phones, particularly within iPhones, of uh, basically trying to jailbreak the phone for, for a lack of a better term, or at least how that's how a lookout report puts it. And basically once it's jail, once you jailbreak an iPhone, that basically means you can run all kinds of software for whatever purpose you want. And if the person doesn't know, then basically every, all their personal information on their phone is no longer secure. So, uh, we're going to be leaving a lot of links to articles, including to pass things. Just so that people can, of course, do their own research, I think it's uh, really important to look into. Uh, There's a lookout report from 2016 that actually goes over the code, the technical aspects of how that attack happened. But a a similar kind of audit will probably need to come out from this latest array of attacks, um, because one of the actual consequences of the lookout report was NSO completely changed the ways in which they attacked, like their vector of attack. Um, Because of course they don't want people to know that that they're spying on them. That's the whole point. So anyway, that's just to give a little bit of background information. We'll kind of take it from here. But but, Bern, I just love to hear your kind of initial reaction when you hear that something like this has happened.
1: First thing comes to mind is the 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 organization who's spying on people called NSO and where thing in america called nsa (laughs) as if somebody designed that you know it's like a tom clancy novel who tries to tell a real story with some of the actors being abstracted (laughs) so they call instead of nsa because it doesn't remind me well
0: well to be to be fair to them that's just the it's just like the initial the the creators right it's Right, to but go just, along with their names, but, but but it does make it sound like an American it, spy. It, it does
1: remind me of 2001: uh, Space Odyssey, how you know, the computer was called HAL and was one letter offset from IBM, the big computer company. Oh, right? okay, HAL yeah. was below the alphabet from IBM. But um, well, the other parallel there were the NSA hack, well, the American NSA spying on Americans. That kind of Edward Snowden uncovered is that this uh, Israeli spyware was in the end used against also Israeli journalists, right? Something that was supposed to be a foreign intelligence to defend, the country of Israel was then turned against political enemies inside the country. And the other thing I want to add to this from a technical perspective, um, this being able to send somebody a secret message because the thing was not only can't you defend yourself against receiving a message, they were not visible, they didn't show up in your Mm -hmm. literally the phone can receive a message without you seeing the message and that's uh, debated whether those are backdoors by Google and Apple, right? That they're not necessarily vulnerabilities, but you know, they use stuff like that to update the device or revoke, you know, like when your phone gets lost, they can disable it remotely. So there are some superpowers or admin powers that these companies have, like that, who make the phones or do the service. And so in a way they always have this power to control your phone. That's why some people jailbreak it themselves, you know, they root their phone so they have total control over it. And that was an existing capability that just got abused. So we have to be clear about that. It's not some e- just some evil hacker. The technical capability was there all along. So somebody else deemed it necessary to control your phone, and then somebody, you know, bad actor used that for a different purpose. Yeah, I think that that's important to to point out. And what I found interesting, I hadn't heard that before. That you said the Israeli intelligence service considered it a weapon, which is not unusual, you know, for cyber warfare. It's, but the irony of of the kind of same place that kind of invented this stuff acknowledges that they're a weapon. You would figure they defend themselves. or No, it's not a weapon, but you cannot blatantly admit to that.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of curious things about this particular event. So, for instance, the, the CEO actually came out and gave an interview about this thing. And one of the things that he said sort of to defend himself was, okay, look, like we... Only give this technology to governments, right? (laughs) Which which actually doesn't say anything about whether it's being used fairly or not. But first of all, but but you know, he said, okay, so you know, we can only give it to people approved by the Israeli government, which you know, again, we're talking about political relationships, about allies and whatnot. And and he said, okay, well, once we give them the software, like we're not responsible for what they do. If we knew that they were targeting activists and journalists and whatnot. We, we obviously wouldn't let them use it because that'd be there's human rights violations that are implicated with using technology in this way. And it was just really interesting to hear that. This kind of like, oh, well, you know, like we gave them a gun, but, you know, I didn't realize they were going to use it on whoever they wanted. It's, it's just kind of a bizarre situation. I think people are acting really viscerally to it. But one of the reasons why I started with the history of this particular company is because if they have a method of hacking into people's phones that gets patched out or gets fixed, you know, say there's a certain back door that they're able to exploit, then they find another way in, right? That's their job. They they develop technology to do this kind of thing. And something you've actually mentioned in the past, Bernd, is about a kinds of arms race that can happen when people are deliberately trying to do these things. And again, this is a, a military-grade organization who's trying to tamper with consumer products and that doesn't even seem like a fair fight
1: it's it's interesting that what you said about the that they kind of create a weapon that they even acknowledge and as human rights violations and yet the mentality is like what the end user does with is not our responsibility it's the classical diffusion of responsibility right where me as a manufacturer of a System that can be used for dual purposes. It's not my responsibility to restrict that to bad actors, which is actually bogus because we have international agreements on arms trades, right? Like very tight control over over nuclear weapons or certain weapons of mass destruction, and even regular weapons. I mean, they being undermined by criminals and organized crime and some some rogue governments. But we already have a precedent for that. Humans in general agree that weapons trades should be restricted and accounted for. So to say. Oh, it's not our responsibility while at the same time they acknowledge it's a weapon it's kind of like weaseling out or you know i refer to that as externalizing the cost i get all the benefit by sound technology but whatever societal cost to freedom of political stability is that's a cost society cares i don't have a stake in that right that's that's the unfairness of the whole system the other thing i want to add is uh it's interesting after the cold war so the americans the russians were at cold war they had these really sophisticated spy agencies right once you know, the Soviet economy kind of fell apart and wasn't considered that much of an enemy anymore, um, what ended up in the 90s, that the Americans used all these spy resources to spy on Western European countries, even though they were allies, right? West Europe was allied with the United States, but they used to be industrial espionage, right? Just stealing trade secrets from French and German companies. So I find that curious that uh, France was one of the, you know, we helped governments to spy on their enemies and in a way. Like, I wasn't really sure that Israel and France are at war with each other, that, like, how is that, like, uh, oh, we help you, your government, we the government, knowing that you attack another government? It's...
0: Yeah, uh, actually, one of the things I want to bring up, and you might actually know more about this than I do, is they found... Uh... Let me see. Let me just. Uh, so Amnesty International found about 212 infected DNS servers, specifically in Germany, mm. by, by far the most, which was really interesting to see how focused on Europe most of those infected servers were. And again, it just speaks to a kind of suspicion. I don't know what kind of politics is going on in the background, but it's I would think these countries are at peace in in some sense, right? Like there, there's not like an active conflict going on. It's we're, we're we're not talking about say Israel deploying spy spyware against its um explicit enemy enemies, though, though though they have right. Um, so so for instance, I think a country like Morocco comes to mind, for instance, and they're specifically targeting activists in Morocco as well. That was one of the instances that happened a few years ago, and so. The kind of motivations for this are well, well, I mean, from hearing what the CEO said, I'm not really sure. But one of the things I do wanna kinda of point out is, you know, we've kind of talked in the past that there's not a lot we can do about, say, bad actors, you know, so that's like kind of people who wanna just do whatever they want. They wanna try and hack into things. But I think it's different when you have Institutional national level support for spyware of this kind that's immensely powerful and immensely targeted, because for instance, NSO has executed attacks that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, like five hundred thousand dollars upwards of like eight hundred thousand dollars, to specifically hack into one person's phone without their knowledge, and that's kind of scary. <laughs> I mean, I don't really know what to think about that, right? But but I think it speaks to the scale of these things as opposed to, you know, the person in their basement who's trying to hack into another person's phone, right? This is a completely different level of attack, and I just want to really make that clear of why it's such a big issue and why people are
1: making a big deal about it. i also set in context where we're sitting in the United States and kind of finger point or, or criti- critically examine other countries' practices that the U.S. is kind of like a leader in those things that has some implicit role model in it because what comes to mind is this Ducksnet virus. A while back, the NSA or one of the American uh, technology agencies was experimenting with this, I don't remember the technologies, but it was infecting Windows computers through some vulnerability all the way that when the computer already booted up, so there was no way for a virus to recognize it. And they had that in lab and it was extremely uh, contagious, like computer viruses have the way to uh, replicate themselves like biological viruses. It's being built in as a, as a hacker mechanism. And so the CIA or the NSA, they have this lab where they try out all these really, this malware, and it got out of the lab, right? The classical sci-fi movie where the biological virus gets out and except it was a computer virus. And then in Iran, what is it? They have centrifuges with which they enrich uranium, which is eventually to make nuclear weapons out of. And it just conveniently, that Stuxnet virus was used to destroy the centrifuges, right? and which they think was deployed by Israel against Iran. But you could trace back this computer virus back to the Americans, right? So they already set the precedence to give what they knew was a very lethal cyber warfare weapon. Somehow ended up in Israeli hands, which was actually not surprising because the U.S. Is, has been supplying weapons to Israel, their so mm-hmm. allies, right? Uh, so in a way, like, instead of the U.S. attacking Iran directly, they used a secondary state. And with with Russia having this clearly, you know, we haven't lost the cold war i keep thinking whenever not some other actors harms the us or the western allies somewhere in the end it's either uh russia or china like these really systemic uh different ideologies where it's a proxy war russia themselves would do it and they would get trade embargoes and it would be a big political mess but if they go through other states acting on behalf the of them harming their enemies you know this is always something to keep in mind like is it really israel versus france or is it Somewhere in the back, you have the old communist system versus the Western European system. It's never really what it seems to be on the surface. There's there's longer history and, and more strategic adversaries at play, which and some of them are just pawns, right? When you have this country fighting that country, and you're who's really behind that possibly.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things to point out here is that if we're talking about government clients, you know, one of the strongest national ties that Israel has is to the US. So I don't want to Imagine like that wouldn't be the case, and also you know, unfortunately, because the the way that media is concentrated, there's lots of incentives, let's say, not to be divulging military secrets of the U.S. Right. So so those are just kind of things to consider. But I'm glad that there's a story out here so that people understand what's possible. Because, uh, and we've talked about this kind of offline in the past of there's really only so much you can do if someone wants to like tap into what you're doing and, and, and see. And it's just really, I mean, it's, it's really scary, right? Uh, Even thinking back to remember the FBI demanded the the back doors to, to iPhones if they're looking at cases and stuff. And from what you're saying, it's not that they couldn't give them that power or they don't have that power, right? It's there's, there's kind of a, a brand protection that's going on there as well. But if someone can take advantage of that or if, uh, again, the, the Lookout report in 2016 talked about, you know, if there's a certain process that you can interrupt in some way and then get it to run random code of your choice, then, you know, you can run this whole process of, you know, getting more and more malware into a system. And to, to have sophisticated kinds of attacks like that are going to be really hard to deal with for 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 almost everyone. And if you're in a politically sensitive position, then you have all the much more to worry about, especially because we depend upon our technology so much to connect with each other.
1: It's a really difficult space to navigate because on the on the one hand, you, you fight the naivety of the average consumer who's not aware just how much is going on in the background. And on the other hand, being stamped as a the. Uh, conspiracy theorists because there's plenty of those very unreasonable conspiracy theorists and this is a whole complex that does exist it's well documented the average person doesn't understand it because it's too complex but it's definitely not a conspiracy theory because things like google being founded by the cia that's a well-established fact right and and this whole because it came out of september 11th attacks at that point the threshold was very low to sacrifice privacy for for national security or this whole bout with FBI versus Apple—they very well have backdoors, but they—they model up the public conversation so much, like you said, so Apple doesn't take a brand damage, and the government doesn't look like overreaching, right? So they diffuse this whole thing, have this public fight. We want the backdoor, no, we're not going to give it to you. Now the public believes there is no backdoor when really technologists have established, like what I just described, this uh, empty invisible message. That's the mechanism that companies build into it. That's being used by the government. It's—it's it's this. The public debate isn't really what uh you know that's why investigative journalism is so important and, and valuable and this is why they silence the really good journalists right why, why these measures go because they're uncovering a lot of this and my personal belief is actually the more people know the truth in democratic society the more this will be taken care of so transparency then people can vote they can choose to not buy certain products uh they can go on the streets and protest so a lot of effort is being put in to diffuse or, or put smokescreen out the issue. So people can't really have an informed political opinion.
0: Exactly. And the fact that say things like zero click attacks, like this ones are possible that those attacks can, you know, send you a message and then make sure you don't see it. So you don't even know that it's happened. It's a, uh, I don't know. It's just a, it's, it's really sophisticated on a level that most people like, I think it's, it's hard to fathom. And it's funny because there's actually lots of things going around now to be like, Oh, okay. Like, you know, here's how to check to make sure that your, your phone doesn't have Pegasus. And if we're talking about, you know, 50,000 targets, which is obviously a lot, but you know, in comparison to everyone who has a smartphone, it's not that big of a percentage. Um, and so to, to have people worrying about like this specific sort of thing, I don't think is what we're trying to do, but rather to raise awareness that these sorts of things can happen. And that there's both, uh, you know, exploits in the ways that things run. Um, and also these, you know, superpowers, admin superpowers that you're talking about, that the company kind of always has, regardless of what, you know, you think about it. And I think that raises a, uh, issues with, say, rising political tensions and efforts to, say, censor other people or to track other people, you know, people who are on this side or that side of the government, depending on who's in charge. And I think that's where we would start to run into issues where people are kind of unduly targeted by these systems. And honestly, I mean, we we have no idea how much this is already happening, but it's just something that we kind of have to keep in mind of, the more sophisticated these technologies become and the more we depend on them, the more we're also making ourselves kind of vulnerable to those attacks, right? We're adding in extra vectors for those things to happen. So it's not just as simple as embracing technology in all of its glory, but there's this other thing that comes with it.
1: What I find remarkable is we had exactly the same scenario when the US uh, NSA was spying. You know, I remember in Germany, the head of state, Angela Merkel, she's like the... Equivalent of a U.S. president, but for Germany, it's not called president, but she's a head of state. And her phone was being spied on by the NSA. Like it was like 2010, at least 10 years ago. And what a big shock that was! Because the U.S. was supposed to be an ally, right? They never really considered that. Uh, I mean, these phones of head of states—they're encrypted. They have all kinds of security measures, right? You know, Germany has its own secret service for national security and this and that. I'm kind of surprised, like how was it been possible for Macron's phone to be bugged like that? Didn't they learn anything from 10 years prior? Or uh, is it really just, no, it's only hardened against adversaries you know, we didn't assume Israel would would hack it, but it's usually a total security package. So does France not have a, a spy agency who so knows how to secure the phones of their own heads of states. <laughs> there is a little bit level of incompetence, like these things are known that cyber warfare is a thing. That's like the main thing because we agreed on, we can not nuke each other anymore. We can't torture and kill the soldiers. You know, it's just inhumane. So now this, the conflict is always there. It just moves to a higher level. It's becoming economic. Now it becomes information warfare in a way like Stephen Pinker documented. It's like, it's actually a safer version of war because not so many people die anymore, right? Like as shocking as it is to the freedom of thought and all this and autonomy of decision-making but in the bigger picture, the wars are not fought on the battlefield anymore. Soldiers die or we don't nuke the whole planet. But that conflict is now carried out in the economic and in, in the information sphere, which doesn't make it any better. But um, I'm just surprised about like, governments like France or in, in Germany, how they haven't recognized that that information warfare is or even the US in 2016, that they didn't really harden against that, what they knew Russia was interfering with information warfare. This You have the bad actors, but at the same time, it's almost reckless to know there's bad actors and not do anything about it. So it's almost like reckless endangerment, even if your intention wasn't to do anything harm, but uh, to know there's a bad actor and not defend against it.
0: I mean, I feel like it's maybe going a bit far to say that they don't have, or they that they haven't tried to prepare for these kinds of attacks. I'm sure that they they have, right? And partially it is a matter of, money and time in a lot of cases, right? Where if you really try hard enough to get into one person's specific phone, you know, maybe there's a vulnerability, maybe. Uh, so So, for instance, uh, again, going back to 2016, uh, Lookout put, put out this report basically that went step by step on how the the spyware worked, right? And I would advise anyone who's interested in that to get to go and read it. Uh, we'll have a link in the description. And basically what that was talking about is this very kind of convoluted process of, you know, using the way that the iPhone marked uh, like temporary memory for trash, right? For You know, kind of the way it allocates and reallocates resources and then just kind of, you know, <laughs> just just throwing in line by line of code, right? And there, there are just certain processes that were that were vulnerable. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why Apple has been under criticism is how much more could they have done. And one of the things that Apple actually said is like, well, it's our job to protect everyone. I don't know how much we can protect one specific person to this kind of targeted attack. And, and that's kind of why I've been emphasizing this, right? Of it, it really is trying to get into one person's phone get into one person's data and that's why it's really is espionage right it's 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 something that's uh very aggressive very direct
1: i mean i, I hear you with the argument you can't really harden you know no matter how much you harden your house against 10 criminals if somebody's dedicated enough is enough resources they will break into your house and if they just nuke it or something like that on the other hand uh i worked in computer security and that's like your main job so to say there's nothing we can do about it so if you're working the German Secret Service or French Secret Service and you're a cyber expert, you're not doing your job if, if, you, if you say, oh, well, there's nothing we could do about it. Because a lot of these vulnerabilities, if you go on the nerd level and follow people like Bruce Schneier, right, there's a lot of security experts who actually point out these vulnerabilities, even if they don't know that particular, because they don't have access to the source code. But there's this whole industry in computer security called penetration testing. They, they get paid for hacking this white hat hacker, right? They get paid to try to hack into a the system. There's even uh, contests. Uh, there's sometimes even professional hackers who become white hat because, you know, Bank of America says, we pay you 10,000 bounty for every hack and break-in you find. We'd rather pay a white hat hacker than have a black hat hacker actually break into our systems. So there are methods to address this. So to me, it's, it still comes across as negligence of duty if you're the secret service of a country and your job is to secure the president's phone. They're clearly not doing their job as good because you have the security experts who say, you should be doing this, you should be doing this. And then if you look under the covers, they have high turnover, they didn't get the budget allocated, or some mid level political issues just kept them from actually focusing on. Because I heard there's a lot of companies too who got hacked, where a lot of, or uh, you know, like can pick the space shuttle, where the experts usually warn the company, you shouldn't start the space shuttle in icy conditions, right? I'm sure within the French government or in German government, somebody pointed out on the technical level, and these people don't get the, the attention level of a higher-up decision maker to actually do something about it. At least that's that's my experience. And I wonder to what extent that played out with these.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the other things that you're speaking to and that you've kind of done a really good job of explaining it is just how different conflict is now. And I think there may be a sense in which... We don't really understand the implications of what it means to have a primarily cyber warfare driven mode of conflict, you know, especially of international conflict of, you know, again, like national level actors with military grade technology, you know, uh, you know, encryption, as you said before, you know, was a military grade technology at one point. And I, I definitely do think it is. It is definitely embarrassing if a head of state ends up getting hacked in this way, though, for sure.
1: Uh, well, I want to make clear that the reason why I anchor mm-hmm. so much on the responsibility because one of the pillars of ethics is the if you know something's dangerous and you're professionals, your duty to deploy it safely so it cannot be abused or blow up, right? And mm-hmm. one of the precedent cases, one of the case studies we use in our training is. Uh, Equifax, I believe. Equifax sits on this huge data trove that they gathered from people without their consent, and they use it for credit score, right? That same data can be used for identity theft to impersonate you taking out a credit, which uh, Equifax will verify against their database. So it's kind of like they create this vulnerability by having all this data from people. And there was a data breach, like some hardcore hackers, commercial hackers, broke into the systems and Equifax, oh, bummer, a big accident, right? No, you should have known just how sensitive this information is. And worse yet, they turn around and then sold like uh, credit record monitoring or locking to the customers who were affected by the breach that they caused. There's almost, you could reject that of this government where the government creates these weapons that later, oh, good thing we have a secret service can, or an NSA can defend against those. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. We cause a problem where we're the solution to like Kaspersky labs, right? Where they there was some shady, they were working with the actual hackers and then Kaspersky Labs is a security company that helps you fix the ransomware that they were. And then that's where it becomes unethical. If you're, if you say, who, there's nothing can do about it when really it's your, your moral duty to do the best you to do something about it. Uh, yeah, there's always 95, you know, the, the remaining 5% where nobody can do anything about it. But to me, it's an ethical lapse when you sit in a high level of responsibility and you don't put the diligence in it to keep the accidents, or there's a bad actor. You know, we, we agreed on that. Criminals are by definition unethical, right? That's like the definition of crime. But the person who deals with the criminal need to do their their duty, otherwise they're they become enablers. Right?
0: I have a couple of thoughts on this. First off, I I do think there's a difference between, say, a company like Equifax, right, who really does specialize in data analysis, like, like these other sorts of things. And they, they they really should understand why the system is vulnerable and what sorts of things can come out of it. And if they have some other thing that they're trying to do or maybe it's into their bottom line to change that way things, the way that things work, that they won't do it. But I also do know that some other industries, and unfortunately one of the ones that really comes to mind is the data infrastructure of, of hospitals of where they kind of have to rebuild their record system, you know, kind of piecemeal because they're not in the business of that, right? Like, uh, and so that leads to these weird convoluted systems that probably aren't as secure as they need to be. And it's harder to move institutions like that to completely redesign those things because they also depend upon the, that infrastructure for, you know, patient records, right? It's data they're using all the time. And so... I would hope something like this would be kind of a big reminder of how important it is to keep those things secure. Um, And and this is the last thing I'll I'll say on this point. Something you had mentioned earlier, especially when you're talking about admin superpowers, is it's a matter of exploiting capability, or it's a matter of exploiting things that the phone's already doing, right? Like, like it is already tracking your location when you probably don't want it to, right? It is already reading your messages when you don't want it to. And so the fact that someone is spying on your phone to take advantage of those capabilities that are already sort of built into the system is also a problem, right? It's not simply that, you know, someone's going in and has to figure out how to do all those things. They're, they're kind of really tapping into tracking capacities that are already there. They're just redeploying them for their own
1: purposes. One thing I want to what you just said I want to anchor and so you mentioned healthcare right they're very vulnerable because they focus on healing people not not managing IT systems even though um, there's there's a, so it's actually a positive note right we've been criticizing and kind of like point out what the dystopian world will live on but there's there's a positive development of all the hackers like the criminal hackers or the economic you know organized crime hackers who economically benefit from this ransomware there is a subset of these hackers who have developed a code of ethics, kind of like back in the mafia, they also had a code of ethics that's you know, certainly you know, like do young kill children or stuff like that. And they who committed, no, we will only extort banks, only organizations, but we will not attack hospitals where there's a risk of people dying You know, when they don't have a record about their allergies or medication. And then there's a set who we don't care. We just want money. We don't care if people die or you have, that was a Russian organization. We hate Americans anyway. Every dead American is a good American. But I found it curious that you had a subset of hackers who became ethical hackers. Like, we will only extort money from people who have too much. It's almost like they were like, uh, what, what do you call the, they always say, like, right-wing people kill people and left-wing people who destroy property. It's almost, no, way. we just have an issue with capitalism. We don't want to kill people We just extract money from those who already have too much. And it's like, you know, it's this little silver lining. Uh, if we can just turn more hackers into ethical hackers to, to not harm people, at least, that only do harm to those who can afford the harm. <laughs>
0: Well, this is one of the really bizarre things I think about the kind of range of ransom attacks, and that's probably something we'll need to talk about as well. Is I, I know for at least a few of those cases, the the hackers would go to a company, right, and they would demand a bunch of money, and then the the company would just be like, "Hey, you know, this is way too much," and then the hackers would be like, "Oh, I'm sorry, we we didn't mean to ask for that much. We'll, we'll take we'll take <laughs> less." <laughs> No, that's just we just we just want the money we don't want to ruin your your business well that's it's
1: like okay that's the standard business it's called negotiation right it's exactly. like they, because the hacker is not served if they can't afford it at all or go out of business you know when you go back to the mafia asking for protection right they go in a restaurant and ask uh, for protection or you you could catch fire if they would ask for too much money they don't have a future business to extort anymore so it's much better better to have a monthly installment small amount than on son, so it kind of makes good business sense if you think about it.
0: <laughs> okay so sustainable hacking is what you're talking that's right
1: about. yeah economically sustainable
0: <laughs> oh jeez right, so so i think a a lot, a lot of people would probably object to this notion of hacker ethics i, I think cuz you know again this is very sort of self-driven it's people who are kind of already operating on the margins i, I mean it, it is important to note that people do say penetration attacks specifically for the service of specific businesses governments other types of things
1: well I was deliberately but, making the connection here to political actors too because I, right. I don't think we have a shared value system in all of society because you got the right-wing spectrum the left-wing spectrum the libertarians the anarchists and this and that so um i know there is an example so in germany in 1970s there was this left-wing terrorist group that kidnapped uh politicians and uh Sea level executives and companies, right? and first they thought, oh, they, they just randomly murder people. Turns out they picked out all the old Nazis, like people who somehow survived the Nuremberg trials, never were uncovered, and now they were in high ranking positions. And this group somehow figured out who was an old Nazi and did war crimes, just never got discovered. And they picked them out. And so all of a sudden, there was a large part in the German population who harbored them, right? who gave them support give them a safe house and stuff because they morally agreed yeah these nazis shouldn't run the modern germany company that's just unethical so there's almost a form of uh, vigilant justice and i wonder to what extent like these ethical hackers actually become more socially acceptable if they say uh the banks are way too rich their practices so we're going to extort money out of them and then anybody who's a hardcore anti-capitalist will say yeah go for it that's a that's a moral hack right because it represents our values so in that point is a really unethical by some people's standards. Well, capitalism is unethical, therefore, it's, if you take money away from billionaires, that's by our system a noble goal.
0: <laughs> American movies actually have a lot of, like, one of the heist sort of tropes. Actually, it, you know, especially if you're going to have a protagonist, one of the reasons that that person can be admirable is in part a lot of those scenarios are depicted in which there's some sort of justice, right? Right, To whatever's being stolen.
1: It's the age old Robin Hood, right? The original Robin Hood story from the 1500s said it's okay to steal if you take it from the rich.
0: (laughs) Right. And so to to kind of roll back on this a little bit, because I think the, the the whole quagmire of ethical hacking is, is going to be very, I think troublesome for lots of people, but something we can make a concrete connection to, though, is the way in which computer science students today kind of take on the moniker of hacker, right? And right, so, so this is something that you see all over the place in coding competitions, and you know, but basically everywhere, right? Where I mean, you're not like a hacker in the sense that you're doing things that are outside of. The confines of society or you know creating dangerous viruses So you know sometimes people do do that i don't think they're doing that in their classes though but but the sense that that there's something of that ethos that kind of exists within this sort of tech world and, and i and you're, you're probably more involved with this than i am so so what kind of do you see and how say how a hacker sort of changed right like in, especially in terms of who it's applied to and do you see anything kind of consistent from like when you got into the industry to now
1: first i want to clarify that i'm not involved in hacking as you just suggested <laughs> i actually take issue with uh so facebook kind of introduced that well, made it mainstream their headquarters is literally on one hacker way right when they developed the campus you know zuckerberg was so excited i'm a hacker so yeah the word hacker is overloaded and that happens a lot in american english where Words get overloaded with different meanings, right? It's not the activity made mobile, but it's considered a whole different activity. And that that meaning of hacking is kind of like an expression of rebelism, right? Against the old system, right? That we're not going to let in. You know, it's, it's largely came of age with the millennial technologists, right? There's this schism between anybody before millennials had a very top down and had to be approved and authority based. I came way back out of the 50s and 60s, you know, like this very military driven space program, every, you know, and that was the 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 rebelism of the millennial technologists they were like the third generation computer technologists basically we knew oh we well, want to kind of let the old people tell us how to do stuff so that's where that hacking basically to do something that's not a proof but not in a criminal way it's just disrespect authority disrespect your older generation and the ethical issue with that is no matter which way you put it i've heard people of that generation and younger even say that there's a certain self-righteousness, like what old people do is not okay, but we what we do is okay, which of course every generation said that, right? The people who are now old used to say that too, and when they were younger, it's like, we're going to change society for the better, and then they get older and become corrupt, right? They Then they get more busy defending the status quo, and it'll be funny to watch this as well with these younger hackers, you know, like Zuckerberg is now almost 40, right, and see what happens when he's 60 and he's busy entrenching his own position, and then the new generation will come up who tries to hack his way, or, or the TikTok, or there's already more modern social media, right? The young people aren't actually on Facebook, they're on anti-Facebook kind of social media. So to that extent, hacking is still against the rules, but not what's commonly considered criminal, right? It's, no, this is righteous hacking. And the ethical aspects, who's to define that via societal consensus? If you consult other people, if you decide it by yourself, you're just another totalitarian dictator, no matter how much you believe you're doing good.
0: Exactly. I think you put it really well it, to kind of give some extra context to this. So, for instance, the people who were considered hackers in, say, the 1980s were the people who developed worms for the first time. They, they were the people who developed viruses, very vindictive you know, untested software in a lot of cases. There, there was one big case that came out from a, I think from a PhD student at MIT who hacked a lot of the academic servers just with something that, you know, made things run really slow. History of things like Trojan horses or, or uh, there was the people in India who would load uh, kind of malware onto bootleg CDs, right? And, and they felt like it was, again, like just that the people... Who were buying these things, right? That they're getting their just desserts because they're already doing something bad, right? They're just finding a way to punish them through this technology. And I think that that element of self righteousness um, is still kind of there. But yeah, the way that most people talk about today, unless they're actual hackers, again, kind of people operating outside of the law, is mainly as, you know, anti establishment in their sort of orientation right like we're going to make new systems we're going to do our own thing Uh, i actually see that a lot in the crypto space if i'm being honest right especially you know again kind of against the banking system of okay like look we're going to do this whole thing you know it's going to be way better it's and you know it's really hard to escape that and i think as people are kind of thinking about the culture around technology it's just something to kind of uh just kind of keep in mind, right, and, and and that people should just remember that that ethos can be used to justify lots of different kinds of things. And that's why I think it's necessary to have these sorts of broader conversations about, well, what is it that we're going to find acceptable and what aren't we going to find acceptable, right?
1: Another, th- another thing to, to unwind, just to, for clarification, is a lot of the stuff isn't really related technology. People are as protected as if. Technologies enabling or causing. Um, so, one example I use is the whole way Uber operated, how they broke all kinds of flaws. And Uber is transportation. It's not a technology company, no matter how much when they got listed on the stock market. It's a technology company. No, their main business is transportation. They just, it's kind of like saying um, General Electric is a technology company because they use CAT software to design the engines, or uh, any company always used computer in the last 60 years, right? They're not automatically a technology company. So they went into all these markets and broke the taxi, right? They had to get licensed to get a taxi, and there was a $50,000 a year. You know, had to buy the little. So everybody abide by the rules, and they just broke the rules, just like organized crime breaks the rules and gets into a business that nobody else occupies because it's, it's criminal to right operate there. And then they created so much momentum for people using that service that they say, well, people clearly want it, so now we're going to change the rules. Airbnb did the same thing, right? They use technology. Sure, Uber was the first time you could order a taxi with a cap. Uh, you can use your phone now to find a living space. Couch serving was nothing new, or people renting out there their home, right? None of this was really new. And the method wasn't even the technology that enabled that. It was just the ruthlessness. Like we're gonna go and break the rules of society. And breaking the rules of technology was just one aspect, but I think it's a whole generation, you know, upsetting of the old order, which happens with every generation, right? So in a way. It's somebody pointed out why you talk about that technology ethics. Ethics is ethics. Technology is a tool, but it's human. Ethics is always human.
0: <laughs> well, one thing I will push back on what you're saying, though, it, in regards to the technology, is the rate of adoption, right? And when you're talking about the ruthlessness, I think you kind of you're also speaking about this, right? But the the rate of uh, like how fast these things were able to get adopted pretty much everywhere it is a big part of the story. And, and actually you'll see this, that say Airbnb had trouble operating in specific regions of the country because of the conflicts with local law and how much people were able to push back against things really, really did come down to say like a local political fight. Um, but it, it, I, I do think that there's still kind of enabling that happens here and, and they're also able to kind of uh, dress up the narrative in a specific kind of way to be like, no, 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 th- this is going to work this n- this way now. And I think that does go back to this sort of like hacker style of thinking of, well, you know, your taxi rules are stupid, so we're just not going to follow them.
1: Right, I mean, you said you took issues with it, but uh, on my argument, but it's, you're kind of confirming it. Because like <laughs> what I'm basically saying in most cases, it's not, oh cool, there's a new technology, what can we do with it? Or oh, we discover the superpower. Most technology is advanced and developed to a political or economic end, right? Where we say, we really wanna corner the taxi market. And what we need, we need all the data and we need a way to, to nudge people or, or get in front of people. Because Facebook was around already, they they really only exploded once they, there was this mobile phone that everybody had and they could put an app on there. So, Technology is an enabler, but I want to move away from that. It's only because of technology. Because there's always these actors who try to you know, dominate the market, take over the world. And then they look for any tools that they could use or develop for it from scratch. Because a lot of the big data technology was developed from Facebook or Google. right? So they started out with this vision, and now they developed the software to realize the vision. Not the other way around. It's like, oh, there's big data. We can take over the site. No, the technology was literally developed as an enabling factor for their ambitions, which some of which are ethically questionable. right?
0: I think uh, because we started this with Pegasus, I do want to kind of get back to talking about spyware, um, surveillance, and things like that, you know, especially in the kind of last few minutes that we have. And one of the things I actually really want people to think about is not necessarily about, again, these kind of military-grade attacks that are very targeted, but instead about the kind of vulnerabilities, potentially known vulnerabilities, of consumer apps to exploit things within the kind of consumer ecosystem. And what I mean by that is apps can leave themselves on and listen to your conversations, right? They can get data from other apps. Uh, You know, Facebook used to have this really scary thing. And I think it was actually something you may have even pointed out to me when it's trying to get us to be able to coordinate software one time of you get an app and it asks you to install something and it asks for every permission possible of like, oh, like I'd be happy to let you use this software. Just let me look at everything that you have in here and, <laughs> and everything else that that might be connected to, which is a little alarming to say the least. But I think that those sorts of things are really common. And so if we kind of get distracted by the, oh, at least, you know, NSO will think twice about, spying on people right it's like well yes but the sorts of things that happen all the time aren't but we just kind of accept them I guess I don't, I don't know how else to put it. I don't know if it is that we just don't know about it or or what but but like I'm like when I rub into these things then I kind of feel like there's no way around them if I want to use the technology that feels bad and I'm, I'm glad that apps are a little bit more intentional about like, oh, like, hey, can we track you in this way or that way and you can opt out of it? But I don't even know if that works, right? That's just, you know, it could just be, could just be, you know, an interface, right? I mean, I,
1: that's the strange thing. This development's um, one of the ethical principles, informed consent, right? Maintain my decision autonomy in some strange way. While well, the app tells you exactly what it's going to do. It's actually fairly transparent, right? You get a list. I basically want to do everything. I want to read and write your contacts and it often has nothing with, I'm a, uh you know candy crush on the game app and i want to read all your contacts it's right there they literally say what they're going to do It's like it's up to you as a discerning consumer it's like why do you need to read my phone and i i do it but the majority of the people basically oh well whatever you know and the impulse to play candy crush is more important than or you know maybe people don't read it but that's almost like application of duty on the consumer side right where a company can't do more in a free society and free market than we're transparent, but you make the decision whether you want to enter in our contract. This only becomes a hazard when you say Google and Apple are such essential services, kind of like water and electricity, right? They're, they're at the point of you can't do without having a phone, email, right? And if they put a 42 page terms of service in front of you that you can either say yes or no, you have no way of negotiating it. That's, you have no choice, right? We talked about the captcha last time. There's certain things I'm a captive audience. I really have no choice because I have to go to my electronic banking, and that's where it becomes this informed consent doesn't really work because I really can't unconsent. Yes, you give me the information, but uh, consent is only meaningful if I can withdraw it without severe consequences.
0: So I, I think at this point it'd be worth thinking about what what we can do, if anything. I, I think part of it is that at least just recognizing that you, we really don't have to use these services right um and especially for things like candy crush that there really may be a way to play candy crush without you know giving access to to everything uh and i think uh, there has to be a larger expectation of sort of selective sharing and i think that there's a, a there's a bit more of that going on but i think part of it at least years ago was, well, we know we can get away with asking for this because either people, you know, don't care, they don't know, or um, they're kind of resigned to it. And so we'll just do it anyway. And, you know, make sure we're not like legally liable or anything like that. But I I do think that framing those expectations will be increasingly important. And as services are being developed to specifically not track, right, I I think that, that sort of pressure will probably help the whole ecosystem just by those kinds of services existing, you know.
1: It's interesting. I always look at precedents outside of technology, just other industries, because mm-hmm. the wheel has usually already been invented somewhere else, but it's a different vehicle, you know, like railboard versus cars. There was a precedent with uh, the way cable vision, uh, cable TV used to work. You get 500 channels and ended up eventually paying $120, $150. And so there was this whole movement called a la carte. It's like, I don't want to watch all 500 channels and I want to spend $120. Uh, they ended up making packages only cost you $40 and you get 20 channels, right? And now we're at the point, uh, you can stream, you can sign up to whatever stream servers and none of them cost more than $20. But that was a real debate. And I think the FTC even stepped in. It's like, it's anti-competitive that you offer everything at once for a high price. You need to give the consumer choice. It's kind of like the motto of the FTC, ensuring that consumers have a choice. And it's really, you can translate that directly to any 42 page terms of service because Google, Apple, they have a lot of functionality. Why don't they make a menu? It's like, I only consent. I only use this and this and this. And therefore you can only get the persons that are relevant for this feature that I actually need. Right. Why don't they do that? Because it's complicated and really contradicts their, their business interests, but that would be the fair way still enabling them to do business, still empowering all the consumers, but give me the choice because that's the issue here. I don't have a choice. I have consent to all and none. And since it's an essential service, I can't do without a phone. I can't do without email. So it's kind of solutions right there because you can look at the other industries, how they solve it. But there's really not an economic or political interest by those who maintain the, the system. So it's, it's not a lack of uh, what can we do about it in terms of ideas. It's more like where's the political will or even from the consumer side, where's where's enough consumer upset or where's the FTC? Why don't they address the information providers the same way they did the cable providers back then?
0: Yeah, and I think this is a really great example of something that seems very doable, right? And if you think about it, if you did implement something like this, I'm sure companies could come up with ways to incentivize people to opt into things.
1: That's a good way to put it, incentivize.
0: (laughs) Well, well, I think in part because uh, the amount of, Money that they're able to generate from data, right? That's supposedly free, right? Is, is staggering, right? So, so I'm saying they, they probably could, they probably couldn't. I'm not just saying monetary incentives, right? But, but like, I don't know if they could be additional services this, or this.
1: This or is this is where I infer when I say that companies have no incentive or motivation, they can do it, but they don't want to. And it's like, well, that's a far fetched statement. It's like, no, that's a logical conclusion when Facebook has such sophisticated AI and data that they can pinpoint your emotions, your interests, right? It's remarkable. And then when it comes to filtering out hate speech, that's too complicated. The amount of resources it would take, that's just nonsense because you do far more complicated stuff when it comes to drilling into people's emotions. You can't do that. You all you have to do is point your sophisticated AI and then tell it to filter out hate speech. But that's clearly, we have no incentive to do so. So we pretend we don't have the capability, but really, like no, you're if you're interested in something, you go to the moon. You 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 invent new stuff, right? It's, I mean, there's so much ingenuity behind those when they have a motivation to do so.
0: Well, and, and as you said, their business is data, right? So, so th- there's no reason for them to, or, or rather, there's no incentive for them to do that on their own. Like you really would have well, some well,
1: data is just the raw material. Their actual incentive or. or Power is these algorithms to make use of data, right? I mean, that's where the innovation mm-hmm. is and the capability. Because there's always been data, but, and that's the thing. What does it take to filter out, uh, you know, hate speech or anything that violates human rights? You know, the, the forms that's, uh, are fully anti-Semitic, even though we all agree it's not okay to be anti-Semitic and to not take a stance. It's like, we'll put all our resources. I mean, I would do it just out of my reputation sake if I were the, 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 the company, right? It's even if you don't have the data, it's like, you don't want to be involved in stuff like that, but that's where the economic interest is like conflict of interest. They make money with it. Why would they tax off the uh, branch that they make money off? Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, great. I, I think that we've done a pretty good job of, of wrapping up on this. Do you have any kind of final thoughts before, before we sign off?
1: I, I always find myself, uh, the more I talk about it and realize like we're, we're pretty well informed, but I wish more lay people or, uh, the broader spectrum of society would just be aware of the issues because I, I think it would foment the kind of same outrage we have with racial discrimination and then collectively more people would yeah we need to do something about it i don't think we're at that threshold yet where enough people know what's going on to be upset about it and politically create a movement or express it with their votes Yeah. You know.
0: yeah and i think part of the other problem with that is that we too are kind of t- dependent upon lots of these like big tech platforms right for even dissemination for this kind of information right so if it really did came to a misalignment of uh, incentives then it would be harder to get this kind of information out but but that's in part why i think it's really important to have conversations like this uh, you know with as many people as possible and you know, just trying to get this stuff out there because uh, I'm hoping that the research that we're able to do and even the stuff we've kind of collected here, people can kind of look through and form their own opinions, right? And, you know, out of that, we can start to have a conversation of like, well, what does it mean that there's been this transition to these types of things that these things that are even possible? And once we do that, you know, maybe we can actually come to Maybe we can actually talk about like, what would the right regulations be? You know, how should they be applied and everything like that? Uh, But we're just not really at that point yet. Thank you for listening. We really value your feedback. So if you like this episode, please consider leaving a review, sharing it, or getting in touch with us directly. You can find that information on our website, digethics.org, or you can email us digethics at mindedculture.org. You can also reach us on Facebook and Twitter at Digethics and on Instagram at DigethicsFuture. Future. For this episode, Burt and I wanted to tackle both the technical aspects of how Pegasus attacks work and also the broader context in which those attacks happened. As the title alludes to, NSO is likely going to continue to try and find new vulnerabilities and new vectors for attack. This means that there will always be a continued conflict between cybersecurity experts and the people trying to penetrate those systems. It'd be easy to say that those sorts of attacks aren't really targeted at regular people. But while that's true, I I also do worry about the more mundane forms of surveillance that we encounter on a daily basis. If anything, these kinds of attacks go to show just to what extent someone can invade our lives if they really want to. To me, it would seem that this generation of technological systems reaches incredibly far into every aspect of what we do. And personally, I don't think we've done nearly enough to negotiate where those boundaries start and where they should end. This is Seth, signing off.